this week you live in a money pit. Money pit. If your basement needs a pump, or your place looks like a dump, you live in a money pit. Money pit. Pick up the telephone, fix up your home sweet home. I call an eight 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 money pit. Money pit is presented by Angie.com. Your home for everything home. And Roof Max. Now here are Tom and Leslie. Coast to coast and floorboards to shingles, this is the Money Pit Home Improvement Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. And we are here to help you take on the projects that you want to get done around your house. So look around right now, people. I know that there's something that you want to take on, some project painting. Maybe it's landscaping. Maybe it's a kitchen job that you're planning for the weeks and the months ahead Maybe it's a job to redo a bedroom or a bathroom or organize your garage. There's a popular project, but whatever's on your to-do list, you can slide it right on over to our to-do list by reaching out with your questions at 1-888-MONEYPIT, 888-666-3974, or post your questions to moneypit.com slash ask. Coming up on today's show, while most folks focus on how their landscape looks this time of year, they may not be focused on their lightscape. With the right combination of low-voltage lighting, there's a whole new view awaiting you. We're going to walk you through the options. And if wallpaper stands between you and your dream home, we hear you. But removing wallpaper is one of those jobs that has to get done sometimes but can be an awful lot of work. We know from our experience doing this very job that there's just four key steps that can make the project a lot easier to do, and we'll tell you how. And if you're thinking about shopping for new windows, that can be somewhat overwhelming, especially because understanding all those different energy ratings and certifications can be really confusing. We'll help sort that out with tips for decoding the window shopping once and for all. But first, what we want to know is what you want to know. So reach out to us at moneypit.com slash ask or call us at 1-888-MONEYPIT. Let's get to it. Leslie, who's first? Lauren, Mississippi is dealing with a very humid home and it has a lot of moisture in the walls. What's going on? Tell us about it. I was calling uh, to find out what do you have to do to keep, like, uh, moisture build up on the walls and the inside of the house that could turn maybe to um, old mildew. What do you have to do to keep that away? So I think it's a combination of things, Laura. I mean, first of all, uh, if you have air conditioning, you want to make sure you're running it consistently because air conditioning happens to be a pretty good dehumidifier. Um, secondly, if you have ventilation fans, these would be in your bathrooms and also in your kitchen. Make sure, absolutely sure they're venting outside and not recirculating moisture back into the house in the case of a recirculating, say, fan, uh, exhaust fan above your stove or in the bathrooms, just dumping it like into the attic. Make sure it's moving that moisture outside. Now, if it's still excessively humid, there's a couple of things you can do outside your house. The more water that collects at the foundation of your house, the more moisture is going to end up on the inside of your house because it evaporates into that space. So make sure you're checking your gutters and your downspouts and getting that water away, making sure the soil slopes away. And then finally, if you're still having a lot of humidity issues, you can install a piece of equipment that is called a whole home dehumidifier. Now, it's not like the dehumidifiers that usually are, you know, maybe two foot by three foot. They sit in the corner and they have like a little bucket. You have to like empty every now and again. It's not like that. A whole home dehumidifier fits into your HVAC system. It's installed professionally, but these things can take out like 90 to 100 pints of water a day. So hopefully some of those suggestions will help you dry up this house. 
All right, we're going to talk flooring with David in Kansas. What's going on? Oh, hey, it's good to talk to you two. Uh, I've got some low volume down on here about seven or eight years ago, and it's cracking and breaking up and everything. And what would you recommend for a good kitchen floor? Well, you got more choices than ever today. I mean, Leslie, I'm thinking about all of the different vinyl plank products. You know, you have the luxury vinyl planks, which look like wood or look like a, a, a tile pattern. They float, they're floating floors. So you don't glue them down. They basically interconnect. They lock together. Uh, and then there's that new, uh, that new hybrid product out from LL Flooring called Duravana. Mm-hmm. And I really like this stuff. It's really tough stuff. And again, it's a floating floor. But, uh, when they sent me some of it, I tested it by banging on it with a hammer and trying to cut it with a knife and I couldn't get through the surface. You know, it was really, really durable. And again, you can get so many different looks out of that same durable flooring. So if you want something that looks more like a tile, if you want something that looks more like a wood, there's a lot of choices, and it's definitely the right material for that location. Hey, well, I appreciate your help. Now we're going to talk about plaster wall finishes with Diane from Tennessee. What's going on? Hi, I want to do a Venetian plaster effect in my movie room. Okay. And I bought the product from Lowe's uh, with Valspar, so I'm not sure if it's a true Venetian plaster, but it's supposed to be probably an easier way to do it. Mm. And I wasn't sure if I should do it on a focal wall only or do the whole room or if that would be too much. Leslie, what is Venetian plaster in its, origi- in its original form? What so are we talking I- about? I believe that it's plaster with the color tinted into it. And when you put it on, it's sort of burnished in a way. So you get areas Ah, with like a shine and then you get areas that are, Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to say porous, but they kind of, they kind of look like you've skipped a spot, you know, but I guess porous is the right answer. So you've got areas that look almost like, um, like coral where it's like kind of rough and pocky. And then you've got some that are super polished. So it's a technique in the product and how you put it up. So does it provide a texture or is it pretty much flat? It's kind of a combination of both because in the areas where you've got the smooth, shiny, burnished parts, that's super flat. And then right next to it where you have these sort of like openish spots, while it's flat, it still has like almost divots in it. So it, it's kind of a mix of two textures in the process of install. And you know why I'm asking that? Because we, I can't tell you, Diane, how many calls we get in the show about textured surfaces that people are tired of and they want to get rid of. And it's hard, you know? I mean, it's beautiful. And it's a finish that if you like and you're going to be in that house and it's a process that you're willing to either learn how to do or pay the expense of having it installed for you and you're going to enjoy it, I say go for it. I mean, I've seen it more popular several years ago. I don't really know of its popularity currently, but it is a very specific look and the color can be sort of rich and muted at the same time, if that makes sense, because of the burnishing. Um, it really is a lovely finish. I'm thinking I just want to do maybe two focal walls instead of the whole room, but that's what I wanted your advice. If you had anything to add to that. It's, I mean, is this something you're doing yourself? Yes. Yeah, so you're going to find that it's definitely a trial and error. Maybe do some work on a sample piece of drywall that you've sort of prepped first to sort of get that technique down so that you feel comfortable before you apply it to your walls. Um, and then I would definitely keep it as a focal wall or an area above wainscoting or something like that, depending on the room. Um, but definitely try a sample part first and make sure you're comfortable with the process and you're happy with the results. Okay, thank you so much. All right, now we've got Hugo on the line. What's going on at your money pit, and how can we help? Uh, I've got to put a new furnace in. I've had a Linux for 30 years, and it's done good, but, you know, 30 years is pretty good for a furnace. And yep. uh, they want to put in a train. Is that any good, yep. or 
Is there a better one? Oh, or yeah. what? No, it's a very good. It's a very good product. Train as in T R A N E. Um, they are a very good HVAC manufacturer. Lots of good products. Uh, that you know what you're going to find is that um, HVAC contractors get used to one or two brands. They like to work with them a lot. They've had good experience with them, which means they don't haven't gotten a lot of callbacks on them. So if you're comfortable with your contractor and they are recommending Train, I see no reason not to go with that. They've been doing my furnace work for 15 years. And they've always been honest enough front. Well, I think you should stick with them then. Okay. That sounds like a good company. Kelly, you've got the money pit. How can we help you today? How do you get rid of freeloading bugs, slugs, and unwanted rodents from your yard, your garage, your basement, and your home? Well, Kelly, that's quite a tall order. It sounds like you've got a lot going on there. So I think, uh, Leslie, we could divide these up into insects and then into rodents, right? Because you kind of approach them differently. And on the rodent side... Um, that's probably the easier one to tackle because you need to seal up all the gaps from the outside. Rodents only need the space about the size of a pinky to get in there. So you want to seal up those gaps. You want to make sure that your any food as well as off the floor. You want to make sure your containers, like dog food on the floor, for example, in a big old bag. Boy, rodents love that sort of thing. So you got to be really careful uh, with that. We've got a great article that walks you through that and a whole bunch of other tips on moneypit.com. But I think this is a good case in terms of the insects, Leslie, for sort of a general pesticide treatment, because where else do you begin with that kind of infestation? Yeah, I mean, I think unless you know specifically what's going on to treat specific insects, specific rodents, like it's more of a general treatment. And when you work with, you know, a pesticide professional or somebody who does this for a living, they're going to really know how to target everything. Absolutely. So good luck with that project. All right, now we've got Lee who reached out to us through moneypit.com slash ask. I have cement board siding on the exterior of my home. I have a German Shepherd puppy that gnawed the corners off of four pieces of the siding in the middle of a wall. The corner, what I mean by corners, it's about a triangular uh, corner about an inch deep on each board. Obviously, I can't remove the board off the home so how do i repair that to get it looking somewhat normal so lee i think repairing the damage really is going to depend on how much of it is actually physically gone if it's a small area which i think is what you're describing there's a product called wood epox that's wood e-p-o-x it's a two-part product and basically you take a scoop out of each one it comes in like two pint-sized containers You take a little scoop out of each side, and you kind of mush it together. It's like a putty, and you keep smashing it. You keep mixing it, and that actually activates it. And then you use this putty to reform those corners. Now, depending, usually it's difficult where you have surfaces that are that are adjacent like that, where you're going to have some differential movement, but might be worth worth a shot. Uh, But you can reform those corners. Now, the thing that's cool about wood epox is once it dries, you can sand it. You can chisel it, you can saw it. It basically works just like wood, and then, of course, you're going to have to paint it. Now, the other part of this, though, is that you say that you obviously can't remove the siding. Well, you actually can remove the siding. It's not an easy project, but it can be done. It's done all the time. And typically, the way that happens is the first piece uh, comes off, and that usually comes off, and it's, it is damaged, and it can't be re- replaced. I mean, it depends if it's clapboard, for example. I'll give you a trick of the trade for clapboard siding. If you have nails that go through the clapboard, what I do in a case like that is I take a very long, thin nail set, and I drive the nail all the way through the first board and the second board underneath that. And then what that does, it tends to release that board that's, like, tucked up under there, and you could take it out. 
And then what you could do is you could cut in a new piece. And what I would do is I would stagger the joints. So if the first piece, maybe you're going to only put like a two foot piece on the end of the building, the second layer down, you might put that joint at four feet uh, from the end of the building and so on, so that they're not like on top of each other. So you may need some professional help with that if, if this isn't making sense to you, but I can tell you that it does happen all the time and it can be repaired that way. But if you want to give the wood epochs a shot first, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. You're not going to make it any worse and maybe it'll work for you. All right. Now, maybe this is going to last long enough so that puppy gets out of that chewing phase and then it stays looking good because it's going to last. It could be worse. I mean, you could be chewing your shoes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it could be your shoes. You're right. <laughs> Well, guys, well, most homeowners focus on how their landscape looks. They may not be focused on their lightscape. You know, a good outdoor lighting design can not only add safety and security, but also some style if it's done well. So we're going to share what you need to know in today's Home Solutions Tip presented by Angie. So first, let's talk budget. You know, there's a big range here. Exterior lighting costs can run from a little to a lot. So adding lighting to a home where you plan to be there for only a few years is going to merit a somewhat different level of exterior lighting investment than a longer-term house. But even for those bigger lighting plans, this is one improvement where you can easily spread it out over a number of years. So you don't have to do all the lighting at once. You could set yourself up to do the basics and then add lighting as time goes on. And speaking of as time goes on, let's talk durability. Whether you're working with a pro or shopping for do-it-yourself lighting systems, you need to go for quality fixtures and components. Now, low voltage is definitely the way to go, but you need to work with good materials like copper and brass. And I do warn you, there are a lot of cheap landscape lights out there, and many rarely last more than a season or two. So you're better off buying quality fixtures and breaking your project up into smaller chunks to spread the expense out. Now, the reason we're doing all this? Well, to create mood and focus. A range of outdoor lighting fixtures make it possible to illuminate your home's exterior as well as any lighting designer could imagine. But focus is the key. So, for example, for front and backyards, carefully choose focal points to receive the brightest and the most dramatic spotlight, and then build the rest of the outdoor lighting scheme around those focal points. Now, overall, you do want to shoot for a natural look that replicates, say, think of it as moonlight, right? Streaming down from above, streaming down softly over your yard, as opposed to sort of heavy doses of uplighting. And one final point, remember to think about this as a system where you have multiple components all combining to create that beautiful lightscape. You know, sometimes we think of lighting one fixture at a time, but in this case, you want to plan it out so it all works together to highlight your home. And that's today's Home Solutions Tip, presented by Angie. Tackling home projects has never been easier. Just tell Angie what you need, and they can handle the rest. Start to finish. Download the Angie app today. We've got Amy from South Dakota on the line with a window question. What's going on? We have crank-out windows. There's like three windows in a set and the outside two crank-out. And I've noticed some discoloration, mostly along the bottom, a little bit up the sides of the window. And I'm thinking it's maybe some water damage from maybe the windows were out and it rained. But I'm also seeing it on the middle window. Okay. So that has me... Questioning your water damage analysis. (laughs) So, Amy, is the stain like uh, sort of like a grayish color on the wood? Yes. So I think what you're seeing is normal oxidation. And the reason that happens is because 
the sun and the rain, of course, has some some contributing factors here, but mostly the sun uh, hits those lower edges and it tends to kind of break down the uh, break down the finish, and then it starts to fade the wood or turn the wood color. Okay. The same thing happens if you were to leave raw lumber outside for a long time; it starts out nice and bright and sort of yellowish, and then it gets dark, darker and grayer as time goes on as it's exposed to water uh, and to the sun. So I think it's just saying that these areas that you're seeing may need to be refinished. It's not a major problem. It's really a cosmetic one, and it could become structural at some point. But you might want to explore the idea of sanding those areas. And what you'll find is that when you sand them, you tend to take away that gray, and you get down to some of the raw wood that's just underneath the surface. So if you sand them and then refinish those with an exterior-grade urethane, and that's important, I would use an oil-based exterior-grade because that has more UV protection in it, uh, then you're going to find that it will last a lot longer. And in terms of those metal windows, a little confused about that. It could be that sometimes when the water uh, dries off, dries out, it leaves behind mineral salts, and that can look kind of discolored. One thing you could try, a little test for that, is to wipe it down with white vinegar because vinegar will melt those salts and see if that goes away. And if not, I think my fallback would be it's probably just discoloration of the paint and again repainting them, this time with a primer first and then a top coat of paint will restore the finish. Okay, very good. Thank you. You're welcome, Amy. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Edward in Louisiana is on the line and needs some tips about painting a bathroom. How can we help? I'm doing my bathroom, and I got a newborn in the house, you know, and I'm worried okay. about I have some mold there, and I need to I need to prime over it, and I've had two options, so like and kilt primer. It has to both be oil-based from what I'm told. I was wondering if there's some kind of alternative that I could use, uh, you know, maybe a latex or something that would do the same effect because I'm kind of concerned about my, my, you know, my son breathing that in. Sure. Well, first of all, um, since you mentioned that you had some mold or mildew in there, I want you to clean that first before you paint over it. You can mix up a bleach solution with, say, maybe about 20% or so bleach with water. Spray it on those areas. Make sure you ventilate in the room real well when you do this. you have a window to the outside in this bathroom? No, no, sir, I do not. Okay. Do it on a day where you can have some fresh air in the house. Let it sit for 10, 15 minutes, and then use another damp cloth and just kind of wipe it down. This will make sure we kill any mold that's that's there. Um, I will tell you that even the the solvent-based and the water-based products are a lot safer today than they've ever been in the past. The solvent-based, or what you're calling oil-based, most products today have a far lower VOC uh, count in them than they ever used to. So I don't necessarily think it's unsafe to use that. And I think the odor only is going to stick around for a few hours. So that if you could maybe get the family out of the house while you do this painting and bathroom's a fairly small room, I do think that those solvent-based finishes are going to do a much better job 
on the priming. You don't necessarily have to use it on the finish coat, but you could use it just on the base coat on the prime coat. And if you use a Paint Plus Primer product that's rated for bathrooms, you can actually skip the priming step. Yeah, I think that would be the best uh, solution. It's always a great help. You're very welcome, Edward. Good luck with that project. Thanks for calling us at 1-888-MONEYPIT. You got it. Thank you. Well, guys, if wallpaper is standing between you and your dream room, a few key steps can make this project go very smoothly. Now, first up, one of the reasons wallpaper removal is a challenge is that it sticks so darn well to the drywall surface, which is covered by paper, and it's porous, right? So trying to separate the wallpaper from the wall requires a lot of work, patience, and persistence. So here are the key steps to get the project done. First off, you need to score the paper. By scoring, I mean lightly cutting. You can do this with a utility knife, or there's some such thing as a wallpaper scorer tool that will create small holes in the paper. Now, why are you doing that? Because that allows the steam, which we'll talk about in a minute, to penetrate through and loosen up that adhesive. Now, keep in mind, the closer and more abundant those scored holes or lines, the smaller the pieces of pulled paper are going to be when you remove them. And so if you don't get stuck with removing, you know, a thousand little tiny pieces, try to get away with as little scoring as possible. But, you know, you can do too much, but you also can do too little. So it's kind of a balancing act, right? Now, about that steamer, renting a steamer, definitely, definitely, definitely worth the cost and hassle. And it's also the quickest way to separate the wall from the wallpaper. Now, once you have the steamer, you want to work from the top down and get into a rhythm where you steam and then remove one section of wallpaper at a time. Now, if you've got some tough spots, which you're always going to have, I'm going to give you a recipe for a homemade solution that will help loosen those up. You want to mix hot water and fabric softener one-to-one. Then pour the solution in a spray bottle and apply it to those tough-to-remove spaces. Work quickly. The solution loses its effectiveness after about 15 minutes, so... Get it started and get those tough spots done all at once, then mix up some more and continue. Now, once the wall is totally free of that wallpaper or as much as you can possibly get, then you're ready to prep it for painting. So make sure you use a mixture of distilled white vinegar and water to remove any remaining glue. Then wait for the surface to be completely dry before you apply a primer or a paint to the new wallpaper. Now, if all this seems like too much work, you might be thinking, should I just paint over the wallpaper? No, really bad idea. You're still going to end up wanting to get rid of that, and it'll be twice as hard when the wallpaper has been painted over. So follow that path. Remember, those four key steps, scoring the paper, getting a steamer, prepping the wall, and for those tough spots, making sure you mix up some homemade remover solution with the fabric softener and the hot water, and you will be good to go. Now we've got Tina in Tennessee on the line who has a roofing issue at her money pit. What's going on? Yes, uh, we need to replace the shingles. Some of them come off, and it's um, it's an ogre home, two-story, and it's got plywood under there, and then the shingles. So I didn't know. I kind of wanted to put a metal roof back on, and I was wanting to know, do you have to take the shingles off all the way down to the plywood, or would it be better? You know, sometimes they do that and strip that with planks or plywood or whatever, um, or would it be better to 
remove all that, or could I leave it on, or how's the best way? So, I mean, I think a, a, a contractor will tell you you can leave the shingles on, but I think it's a bad idea. There's no purpose for them to be there. Um, what they tend to act as sort of like a heat sink. You'll get a lot hotter roof as a result of that, and then that that heat radiates down through the house, increases your air conditioning cost. If you leave a layer of shingles on and put asphalt on top of that, then the upper layer of roof shingles don't last nearly as long as the original because now, again, they're just being heated excessive an excessive amount of time. So I would recommend that you go right down to the plywood. Metal roofs are always a great choice. Um, they are a lifetime roof. They're very expensive. Uh, but once you do it, and if you do it right, you pretty much never have to replace that roof. Or if you want to try to, you know, just go with a roof that's going to last you, say, 20, 25 years, I would take those old shingles off, and I would put a good quality asphalt shingle back on there and then just enjoy the next quarter century with that roof. If I put the metal roof on, I still need to probably take the shingles off. I recommend that. Yep, absolutely. All right. Thank you. Well, spring is a great time to be shopping for replacement windows, but sorting through all the ratings and certifications designed to help you know whether a window is truly efficient can be a very confusing situation. So that's why it's important to know what all these ratings mean. And there are really just three things to look for. The first thing you want to see on the window is the gold label certification from the AAMA. That stands for the American Architectural Manufacturers Association. Now, that means a window's been tested by a third-party pro, and it meets standards for air leakage, water leakage, and structural strength, all important factors when deciding which windows to buy. Next, look for the label from the NFRC. That's the National Fenestration Rating Council. Now, these independent energy efficiency ratings are going to tell you a lot about the quality of the glass in the windows, like, for example, how well insulated it is, and how much heat it lets in during the summer or keeps in during the winter. And lastly, look for the Energy Star label. This means a window meets standards set up by the U.S. Department of Energy, and that can make you eligible for tax rebates once they're installed. So those are the three things to check for if you're going for replacement windows. If you see those, you know you're dealing with a quality product. Heading over to Rhode Island with Linda, who wants to build a patio. Tell us about your project. What I would like to do, actually, is make it a combination of a patio so I could use it during the summer and also use it as a carport during the winter. And I was wondering, as far as a base, what would be the best? I have a form, and he used that. And he made all the patio blocks. Oh, so he basically made his own paver stones, it sounds like, by pouring them inside this form. Right, but I was afraid if I poured cement into the form. How do you get it it out? How do I get it out? Okay, let me back up for a second. So when you say carport, you intend then for this uh, patio to have a roof on it, is that correct? Yes, I would like it to, where I could still have the sides all open, Mm -hmm. but be able, because I have a collectible car that I wanted to put in. Okay, now what kind of car is it? It's a 1966 Ford LTD. Oh, wow. Well, that's kind of cool. All right, well, let's see what we can do to help you out. So first of all, um, aside from, you know, these forms and this and that, we really need to talk about how you're going to do this base. Now, if you do concrete, that's the most permanent and durable surface. I would recommend, since you're planning on parking the car there, of doing a slab there that is 
at least six inches thick, or maybe four to six inches thick, nothing any thinner than that, and make it a reinforced slab. You know, it's not a DIY project if you've not poured concrete before. It's not a hard project, but you have to properly prepare the surface, and then what will happen is a mason will sort of dig out the top layer of dirt, they'll put stone in, they'll tamp it down, pack it really well, they'll form the outside perimeter, and then pour the concrete and finish it. That's going to be a solid, permanent surface. If you were to do something that was like paver bricks, or even if you did these sections, and by the way, there's forms available uh, to do just that now. If your grandfather's old form doesn't work, um, but the problem with that is you've got to, again prepare the base in the same way. It's got to be solidly tamped. It's more work than the concrete to, to do. Uh, and the problem is that you may get some weeds and stuff that grow through it over time. And if you don't do a good job preparing it, it's going to get all uneven and look wobbly and look terrible in just a few short years. So getting that slab right or getting that base right is really the most important part of this. Now, once you do that, then, you know, in terms of the carport roof, you could attach the roof to the side of the house. You're going to need columns. They'll have to be properly secured to the base of the concrete. You're going to need sway bracing so it doesn't sway back and forth from side to side. You know, there's a fair amount of work. It sounds simple, but this is a, this is a big project. Uh, and if you don't get it right, I, I'll tell you, I have a neighbor here near where we live, and then her husband, who was a great guy, built a real solid carport next to their garage, and it came down the last storm. You know, you got to get it right. It was open on the sides, and it just it was just time for it to go, uh, according to Mother Nature. So I encourage you to get a really good solid base. Um, concrete is best. And you can finish the concrete, by the way. You don't have to look at just concrete. You know, there's a company called Dice Coatings that have some beautiful finishes, including Terrazzo, that you can um, cover that concrete surface with. So it could look great as a patio, but you got to get it right. If it's not solid, you're not going to be happy. I think I need... Someone that's in that type of business, I think it's beyond my DIY. Yeah, I think you do. I really appreciate it because I probably would have started and had a major disaster with us. So. <laughs> Well, uh, you can download the Angie app and find a contractor using Angie. Uh, it works really well, and you can sort through contractors that are in your area, read reviews from, from other folks that have uh, had projects done with them, and maybe use that as a start to identify the best contractor for this project that you're tackling in Rhode Island. Okay? Oh, thank you ever so much for all your help. You certainly have solved my problem. We're helping Brandon make his home better. He says we just added a combustion air intake into the boiler because we want to close off the room and use the other half as a bathroom. While inspecting the work, I noticed the boiler vent pipe chimney have some holes in them and at the joints. Should I be worried about this? So this takes a little bit of an explanation of what he's talking about here, Leslie. For for most of our audience, we're not going to recognize this. But um, I can tell you from reading this uh, that... Brandon has an oil-fired heating system, and he has it inside of a room that he actually is closing off. So if you have like a little closet, like often in your basement, uh, or maybe your, your boiler was in an open area, your furnace was an open area, now you kind of make a closet out of it, you have to make sure you have enough vents in the walls of that closet space to bring in fresh air for the heating system to burn. That's what we call combustion air, and those vents are called a combustion air intake. So he closes off the room, he puts in the right vents, all good stuff, but he notices holes in the vent pipes, and he's confused about that. So I can tell you, Brandon, that those holes are exactly where they're supposed to be, where they need to be. So with an oil system, first of all, you're going to have a hole that's about maybe a quarter inch, maybe three-eighths of an inch in diameter, 
usually pretty close to where it goes into the chimney. That's for two purposes. Number one is to take the temperature of the stack using a very large thermometer. This tells us a lot about the efficiency. And secondly is to check the draft to make sure that the gases are going up quickly into the chimney. And those are two tools that we stick in those holes to do that with. Now, if you have other little gaps around the vent pipe, yeah, they should be sealed, but... Those are always depressurized in the sense that air from the basement is going into that vent. It's not coming out of it. It's not like a plumbing pipe that's like pressurized with water and it's just coming out at the joints. Um, A seam like that is very often just going to have more air kind of flowing into it. So, yeah, you should fix the gaps around the seams, but the hole in there is a testing port, essentially, and it's perfectly normal. So it sounds like you did everything right. Good luck with the project. All right, now we've got Sharon who's selling her house and wants to know if it's the owner's responsibility to clean out the septic tank and have it inspected before the sale of the home. Also, what other kinds of inspections do I need? Well, I'll say this. You know, I spent 20 years as a professional home inspector, and generally it's the seller's responsibility to repair any failure to the septic tank or the septic system. The buyer usually pays for the inspection, and here's why. Because you want the inspector to be working for the buyer, because otherwise there's a conflict of interest, right? Because you as the buyer don't know anything about the inspector that was selected by the seller, and if he turns out or she turns out to be a lousy inspector, you know, you're going to bear the brunt of that. So you do want to hire as a buyer your own inspector, but certain things kind of hands down the sellers almost always fix, and one of them is a failed septic field or a problem with the septic tank. Uh, that's almost always something that they're going to do. Another one might be if there's a termite infestation, that sort of thing. And depending on how your contract is written, if there are certain defects that would prevent the house from becoming, from getting a certificate of occupancy, like very often if you don't have ground fault outlets in the bathrooms and the kitchens, you know, those are the kinds of things that sellers are typically responsible for. It's all negotiable, of course. But you really, as the buyer, want to do the inspections to pay for them. And generally, you want the seller to fix or credit you for anything that needs to be repaired. All right. But, Sharon, be prepared. Sometimes you got to kind of fight to get these things handled. I mean, you never know what you're going to get into going into these contracting phase with the inspection. So stick up for what's right and have everything helped out that you can. This is the Money Pit Home Improvement Show. Hey, thank you, thank you, thank you for spending this part of your day with us. If you've got questions that came to mind as you listened to us, but you couldn't get to a phone or to your computer or to your tablet to shoot us a question, remember, you can reach out 24-7 at 1-888-MONEYPIT or by downloading the Money Pit app at moneypit.com slash ask. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Remember, you can do it yourself. But you don't have to do it alone. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.